Welcome to GLAAD, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Rachel, your host for today, and I'm joined by Danny. Hello. And Levi. Hiya. And if you're used to our intro, usually we say we're in the studios at the British Library, but we are not. We're recording virtually today, so stay with us as we try to navigate yet another way of bringing you an episode of the GLAAD podcast. And so we do something a little different every time, but there's always a healthy dose of all things geography, life, geography, life, and data. And today we're talking about quitters, or as one of our guests today put it, upgraders, those who for a variety of reasons have left academic jobs for different and often greener pastures, although it seems that what is greener is always up for debate. And so when we started talking about this episode several months ago, I hit on the name first. I really like the name Quitter. I thought it would grab people's attention um, and it really captured a sort of mood. But it became pretty quickly obvious to us that for a lot of people, the connotation of Quitter implies giving up. And when we talk about sort of academic quitting, that this seems to suggest that people couldn't really hack it in an academic job and they've had to move on to something else, not because they really wanted to, but because they had to. I have to say that when I thought about Quitter, I really had this this image of like that 1980s song, you know, take this job and shove it, that that quitting is is sort of throwing your hands in the air and all the papers go flying and you, you know, slam the door on your way out and move on to another stage of your life that's maybe a better stage of life. That said, you'll be able to see today that a lot of our guests had different ideas about quitting and what quitting means to them or moving on or upgrading. <laughs> but we augmenting yeah augmenting. augmenting um but academic quitting it's having quite a moment right and sometimes it's referred to as academic quitlet if you put academic quitlet into um google search you come up with lots and lots and lots of articles lots of blog pieces and journal postings from people and sort of detailing their decisions about how they came to leave academia and every once in a while this will bubble up on social media higher education news outlets um lots and lots of examples of who is leaving and why. And I think anecdotally speaking, quitters often fall into a couple of categories. We've got sort of your precarious recent PhDs who would have liked to have had a permanent tenure track academic position, but they have just haven't been able to get that, that permanent toehold, right? But then there are also those, and I feel like I'm seeing a lot of these. I'm curious to hear from you, Danny and Levi, but I feel like I see a lot of people who are, you know, they've, They've had it all. They, they've got a tenured position. Sometimes they're full professors. They've got great jobs. They publish a lot. They seem to, to have lots of PhD students and be well-regarded as a teacher, and yet they leave. And so I'm really interested in, in that. Um, so, right, in this episode, we're going to talk about pushing and pulling, what makes people um, leave academia talk a little bit about the extent to which this golden ring of the academic job has become tarnished, um, why people have left, um, and where they go to when they leave. I think that's a really interesting question for us. And we're do going to do it with some special guest segments again, um, similar to when we did our How to Conference episode, only this time we have um, very strong intentions of closing in about an hour for this episode. But today we're going to welcome Fran Darlington Pollock. Carson Farmer and Seth Spielman. 
But that's enough of me talking. I think before we get started in earnest, I had questions for you, Levi and Danny. I mean, I think first is, how do you read this whole quitting moment? I mean, there is a larger scale kind of transition, I think, from people working one job for a long time to kind of having to change sometimes industries, but but definitely like employment, places of employment quite a few times over their, their life. And I think there might be a realization that even though you've hit the ostensible, you know, on paper peak at a professorship or possibly even a deanship uh, in academia, you know, there are still new things to learn and new things to do. We have longer and longer working lives. I wonder if some of it might just be that people want to want to change. Yeah. You know, I think there was something on Hacker News I saw that was never yeah. waste a midlife crisis. <laughs> and I wonder if in some cases people are, you know, feeling that need to change and just changing. I think also, at least in the area that we work in, the world outside academia is very different and it looks very appealing, to be frank, <laughs> compared to what it was 20 years ago. Maybe just 20 years ago, which is more ignorant, but there's been so much stuff happening with data and there's a little bit of a sense that, you know, Seth will see later, is probably a good example of that. But there's a sense sometimes that the really cool stuff in data and tech is not happening at universities this this time. And if you really want to be at the cutting edge of what what's changing, what's possible with data, maybe the university is not is not the place. And I don't think that was the case. Yeah. Well, I don't know. My my sense was it wasn't the case twenty years ago, particularly with people coming from social science degrees. I guess computer yeah. scientists have had it for longer or, or maybe finance, very niche or, or specific professions, they've had it for longer. But I think we just live in a different world where the idea of having a PhD and not being in academia is, is not only a possibility, but maybe a desirability one. So when you look at, when you look at sort of industry jobs or government jobs, do you look on them with envy? Depends on the day that I've had at my own job. <laughs> there are some days where, yeah. When I meet up with my PhD students that have gone into industry, for example, some of us are about the same age. And there are things that I miss about my stints in industry, you know, working at Cardo or working at Nextdoor. And, you know, the, the, the way that the job is structured is different. The way even in a, in a private sector research job, you know, you you don't have to kind of consider all the different possible perspectives. You don't have to do deal with reviewer two. You just get the job done for the client as it needs to get done, right? So th there are some things that are enjoyable, being able to switch off. And so I think there might be things that, you know, academia can learn about, in particular research culture, but work culture maybe more generally, um, from the people that, you know, we're calling quitters or augmenters. I, I think there's definitely something there that Maybe we need to learn better about how to structure our work cultures because uh, it's definitely different. So do you have envy, Levi? Oh, yeah, for oh. sure. Uh, but for particular things. Okay. It's not like a generalized, uh, I wish I was not in academia. But I mean, I think one particular thing is this um, hmm. kind of the ability to finish a project. <laughs> like you can you can do something good enough and, and let it let it go, right? Mm. The client gets a model that predicts their sales or predicts where consumers are going to be coming from. And if you get acceptable accuracy, you don't need to consider, you know, the novelty of the approach or 12 different things that you needed to kind of different models to compare to. It just works, you know? So I think there's a different kind of culture there. But I, I was going to say, I think that um, 
mastery of the good enough comes with age. At least to me, it's come with age. I think I feel a lot better doing things that are good enough that allow me to then move on to the next one uh, now than I did five, ten years ago. And maybe it's a different kind of job that I do in within academia, but um, there is something to be said about maturity. I don't know if maturity is the word, but being old and being happy, not being perfect. So I'm struggling a little bit, though, with both of you to understand whether it's a difference between the structure of the job or the content of the job. The culture, I think, for for me. It, so it's it's more like the the way that people approach what they do. And I'm not sure if that's content or structure. To me, it's like the vibe, <laughs> the feeling. Uh, I think that that's very different. And there are there are nice things about the vibe of not being in academia that I think I miss. Yeah. And I think, you know, my students like as well. One of the reasons why I got in research is because I found it thrilling to feel that you're at the edge of something, that you are bringing something new, even if that something is very small. And in some areas, I think that edge is not in academia these days. And that part I miss sometimes. Uh, and I, I, maybe yeah. I don't miss it because I've never experienced it, but I do have a bit of envy. Okay, well, I have another question, because I'm full of questions. Uh, would you, either one of you, think of yourselves as quitters? Well, I quit economics, so extra, uh, <laughs> that's almost as, as big as, um, well, I don't know what it is as big as, but... And how was it? Was it an augmentation, an upgrade? I love to think that geography was an upgrade from economics. <laughs> yeah, kind of an upgrade. Well, who got the upgrade, though, economics or me? Um <laughs> I think it was a slow realization. Well, it, it was a bit like bankruptcy, that it comes slow and fast and at, at the same time. There are some aspects that happened quickly and or, or relatively quickly and, and didn't have much to comment on. But then there's a lot of things that even years after I've sort of realized why the move was felt like the right one. Uh, and I don't think it was... It was an upgrade for me because I wasn't as good as fit to econ, not because econ is less than, or more. Yeah, but you didn't change industries, you just changed disciplines. No, no, yes. Okay. So you're a, dis a discipline quitter. Yes, I'm a <laughs> discipline quitter, exactly. In fact, I've never really had a job. I've just lived my life in academia, in university. I mean, I think, I think for me, I definitely feel like I chose to quit startup life when I left Nextdoor, because they asked me to stay on hire me out of the PhD. And I made a, you know, concrete decision. No, I want to go back and finish. Um, and for me, that was kind of turning my back on something that I had long thought I'd like to do, which mm. would be working in kind of a geographic data science role at a company that, you know, was making new stuff. I had the opportunity to do some novel research there. Um, but it just, you know, it wasn't for me. Uh, so I, I do think about that a lot, and I think it's core to my identity as an academic that I quit industry. So I guess in that way, I've uh, made my bed and now I'm lying in it. But mm. I wonder about you, because you, you also have kind of a similar experience. Yeah, well, I think I, I think of myself as a reverse quitter in that my first few jobs after the PhD were not at all in academia. So, And I really, really wanted an academic job. But for family reasons, it just made sense to take the job that I could get in Washington, D.C., and that was at the U.S. Census Bureau. And so I can see the appeal of the grass being greener, but I, I feel like I was in sort of parched 
<laughs> drought-afflicted grass in a lot of the jobs that I had before, in the sense, not because they weren't good jobs and not because they weren't fantastic places to work in their own way. I mean, the Census Bureau, it's hard to imagine more data, right? I mean, it was it was heaven. It was a research job doing nothing but working with census data and with really, really smart people. But it came with a lot of those, so not the content of the job, but the structure of the job, right? It was people who came in and worked entire days and then they went home, they didn't do any work. They washed their hands and they were done with it. But I just, I had little kids, I wanted flexibility. We had actually incredible internal review processes. And so you never were done with something because there was like reviewer 50 who was going to look at your maps to see if your maps were, you know, if they were structured in the right way. And I, it did, it did leave me with the feeling that academia would have so much more freedom. Uh, and I think that I'm right. right? Um, nobody has to approve what kind of papers I want to write. Nobody has to decide what the top five important topics are to be broached. Nobody's checking what I say in public to make sure that it aligns with sort of what is okay to say. Not so much about government policy, because it's a census bureau, right? It was more like, can can the numbers actually back up any statement that we want to say, right? And so, like, a really great example is anything to do with residential mobility and that um, Brookings would get the phone calls from journalists after they talked to us because we would say, you know, it looks like, I don't know, I'm going to make this up now. It looks like Atlanta is growing more than Phoenix, but all of our data, our sample data, we, we we really can't necessarily say that on an annual basis. But you call somebody like Bill Fry, and Bill Fry is absolutely comfortable to say, I ranked the data, and yeah, indeed, Atlanta's growing faster. So there was all sorts of stuff where I thought it'd just be really nice to be an academic. Um, and so I've really enjoyed putting together this episode just to sort of hear from people what it's like when when people make that sort of opposite move and this recognition that there's the content of the job, the kinds of work that we want to do as researchers, the sorts of data that we want to work with, the impact that we want to have, and then this recognition that there are so many different ways to actually accomplish that. And so I think without taking up too much more of our time today, because because our, our guest segments really are sort of the, the backbone of the episode, um, I'd like to ask Danny if he could introduce our first guest segment. Yeah, sure. So first we have uh, on stage or on virtual stage Fran Darlington Pollock, who I met when she was still an academic. Well, she when when she was a lecturer in in uh, at the University of Liverpool, where I'm based too. Uh, and I'm not going to say much more. She's currently head of strategic development at the Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity. Uh, does a lot of really cool stuff across all sorts of aspects of life from dining with CEOs to uh, sourcing ropes for, well, she will tell you actually what for. <laughs> um, but I won't say much more because in the conversation, she, she will tell you all about her trajectory and where she came from. All right. Thanks. Well, here's Fran. I am Head of Strategic Development at Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity uh, and the charity is an independent charity who believes homelessness has no place in Greater Manchester. So we, we basically raise funds with corporate partners, community fundraising, events, individual giving and then grant that out back into the homelessness ecosystem across Greater Manchester. And the job role, like Head of Strategic Development, is maybe a strange role because it's essentially the head of the charity. So what does your day look like? What is what is life as a head of strategic? Wow, it's, it's one of those life in the days of, isn't it? Um, it's pretty varied. It can be anything from reviewing with the team kind of applications we've had in for grants. It can be looking at 
are fundraising, which is anything from events. I'm currently organising a bus pull where teams will be literally pulling a bus to raise money for charity. So I'm doing things like finding ropes. I never thought I would be doing that. Um, but it's also things like um, reaching out to businesses across Greater Manchester to start the conversation and be like, this is why you should work with us. This is what it could look like. This is what it brings to you. Um, and also bringing in some of my background, we launched a, um, a new roundtable series. So, for example, the first one, we hosted a discussion on the potential of universal basic income as a policy lever to address homelessness. So pretty varied, but like grant making, fundraising, and outreach, I suppose, are the main ones. Nice. Quite a, more than one hat in the same hat. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your trajectory and how you went from a degree in geography, correct? A, a, a PhD in geography, an undergraduate degree in politics. Okay. So how did you go from there to organizing, looking for ropes and <laughs> fast pull yeah. exercises? Yeah, it's it's never a kind of straight journey, is it? Like, So I, I did a politics undergrad and then I did an, an MSc in social and spatial inequalities. So that was in a geography department and that's what got me interested there. When I finished that, I had a year in London, first rather oddly in the private office of Michael Gove, writing his letters just as a temp job, very strange. Um, and then at the NHS and public health intelligence. And the reason I went and did a PhD is because I got down to the final two in an interview at the BMA for a kind of policy-based job. And it just so happened that the, the candidate- BMA, sorry? A British Medical Association. So I was really interested in health inequalities. And I got down to the final two and they told me that the candidate they went with had a PhD. So I was a bit like, oh, okay. Um, so I I decided, right, I'll do that then. Um, so then got into the job department. I was in Leeds and I, I was quite liked it. And I was like, I thought, oh, like, let's kind of stay here. Did my PhD, got really lucky with timing. There was a lectureship, like a full lectureship that came up literally just as I submitted my PhD in health geography. So it was like a perfect fit at Queen Mary University of London. Um, so then I went there and had a really great year and a half there and then saw this lectureship at University of Liverpool. And I really, really wanted to be in the geography department there. I really liked the kind of like population geography route there. They kind of like everything that was going on. I thought that's exactly where I want to be. So was very, very happy that I got that job. And then while I was doing that, I started kind of having a look at impact from other routes. And I joined the board of the Equality Trust to see kind of like the tangible outcomes of the kind of research I was involved in. And then, I don't know, it got, it was kind of like, oh, this is, this is interesting. And then kind of lots of different reasons why I then used that to go into Save the Children for a year. But that was on the international development side, still very much research advising. I was writing grant applications. I was talking to universities. It didn't really feel like anything had changed from a kind of academic job mm. in lots of ways. Um, I even wrote a course on evaluation that was, I was like testing my lecturing abilities there. Um, and then I, um, yeah, ended up at this job because I wanted to be more in structural issues in the UK and saw this job, which was in my hometown. And I thought, hey, I can live where I work for the first time ever. So I also enjoy that. Nice. Excellent. Quite yes, not not the linear trajectory, but uh, really interesting how they how the dots connect. Um, so, how long have you been outside uh, academia? About a year and a half, I think, maybe a bit longer, something like that. Do you feel settled in the new world? Or, well, settled is probably not the the right word, but do you feel like distanced enough from that life now? I still probably imagine it as the kind of like the save the children bit was really interesting and I really enjoyed it. But it kind of feels like a little kind of like bit in the middle 
you know it wasn't yeah if I think about what was my previous role and where do I kind of draw the most kind of experience from in my current role it's probably thinking actually at the University of Liverpool it's that kind of stuff that I was doing there um so it, in weird ways it still feels really connected like this week I was um with a prof from University of Manchester talking about how we can connect what we can do visiting research fellowships and stuff so I've kind of like I have left but I've, I've probably still got like more than a toe in there so it's it's mm. you know it's that's a sort of USP probably you know that not a lot of people can claim how do you see now with the the sort of benefit of distance an academic job do you, do you see the job as still special do you, or or do you think from your perspective which might have changed and from the job's perspective which may have also changed uh, or it has changed in in the last years, decades. Do you still see academic jobs as something sort of unique, special, in some ways to be cherished? Yeah, it's really mixed, like yes and no. Like I really wanted to be a professor. Like when I was younger, that was a kind of initial like, yes, that's what I want to do. And then I um, astronaut. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of changed a little bit. You know, and then when I started doing my PhD, I was like, oh yeah, no, I I remember this is this is really what I wanted to do. Um, so I still do have some of that looking back. I I kind of think that actually the the kind of like the the imagined version of being an academic is is really not quite the reality of it. And although having been outside of academia, I would say that academics do not have a monopoly on working the hardest and being the most busy. At the same time, even though in my current role I am pulled in loads of different places and stuff. You don't have like a teaching portfolio, a research portfolio and an admin portfolio and then all the other stuff. So I think there are, it's more than one kind of like one full-time job, which lots of things are. Like I definitely feel that to a large extent with what I'm doing yeah. now, but there are kind of bits of it that is just kind of like overflow and it's really hard to contain. So I think that when you think of an academic, you kind of think of someone who's like being able to carve out loads and loads of time for research And even when you were looking at the window. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like, you know, like, oh, what should, what should we do now? How did this happen? And it's like, it do, you know, it is to a large extent, it's like that. And the teachings are really great kind of like oil for that in some ways. And actually, I think the admin stuff, like the kind of admin role I had, I, I kind of like actually thought was a good role to have. I cared about it. But I think it's perhaps not quite what you imagine. And I think increasingly what is challenging is that it is a, a kind of like a sector that people are unhappy in and that you only have to look at the kind of the union activity and I found you know I was in the union and I was kind of like quite happy to kind of support but it does take its toll and on whoever you are wherever you sit in the kind of debate and I think that for looking out whenever I see that kind of thing I'm kind of like oh god I'm glad I'm not involved in that anymore you know like <laughs> that's my immediate response um But that doesn't Things mean you don't that. Miss anymore. Yeah, that bit I'm kind of like, oh well. I also think when it's marking time, I'm like, oh, I do not yeah. have any exams to mark. Like I get, you know, memories on phones and stuff, and I'm like, oh my word, I remember what I was doing then. Like that was stressful. But I do miss parts of it. Like I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I've closed that door completely. Especially because I really mm. like the interaction between policy and thinking and like and universities, like the kind of mm. the knowledge and the innovation that a university can bring. I don't know that I would have completely closed the door on the potential to do more with that. And do you think in that space of, as you said, policy and thinking, universities or, or academic jobs have a 
an advantage over, or, or I don't know if advantage, but at least have some benefits over people who work in the policy world? Less so now I'm on this side, because I think the advantage is that actually you might be able to carve out a full research grant or a full kind of like six months thinking about a particular policy issue. But unless you got lucky, you don't know where to take that. It's that kind of like translation of that that mm-hmm. great idea. And it's like understanding where, whether that's local, regional or national government or decision makers, you need to have got the buy-in and the understanding of what the wider context is. I don't know that people have the advantage. And I think, and I thought this one as it saved the children, universities and charities and public bodies need to get better at talking to each other and recognising mm. what both can do and seeing it as mutually beneficial rather than either a tick in a box or a tick for a grant pay. Doing like someone a favour. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, that, was, that was a really frustrating thing I found at Save the Children, trying to bring in like or make the connections into universities which having been an academic and you know wanting wanting to kind of like have those outward connections it's pretty hard to then go in um so it's kind of yeah, like yeah. why is it so yeah. hard so yeah i think that's that's probably not quite the answer what you're asking but yeah no no this is super i mean interesting and insightful so folding back into the the theme of the episode can you maybe say a little bit about the main reasons you had for for leaving was this a pull and push, a pull and push. It was definitely on, both. both. Everything. It was. It was a lot, and also like 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 to be like really blunt. It, like so during the I was quite ill. I'd I'd been ill for like three years and ended up having surgery last year. That was all happening when everybody else was also dealing with a pandemic, and we were all kind mm. of in that. How do you shift it online? How do you do it like this, etc. And then decisions happen at different institutions to maintain the kind of like longevity and and of the of the institution itself and etc. I I had a reputation on the road that I lived on then as being at my desk like all the time because my desk happened to be at the front like at the you know the window and I was working like many of us were regardless of the sector but I know in in universities was working a lot and I was I was really struggling with that alongside not being able to see a clear kind of like path up because, and that was probably because of what was going on in the pandemic. But also it just kind of made other challenges in the higher education sector, particularly for women, I think, more like visible to me. And I kind of was like, I'm not sure I'm enjoying that side of it. And I didn't feel that the stuff that I was doing was having enough meaning. And I think also I wasn't confident yeah. enough. Like I think when I left, actually hearing things after I left, I was like, Oh, I'd wish I'd like known that before about like, you know, how I was viewed or valued and that kind of thing, which I think is a kind of personal, it's very much a confidence and imposter kind of feeling. And yeah, it's like that, there's that. But then aside from those sorts of things, I had already made the decision to join the board of the Equality Trust or try to, and then was successful in that because I wanted to see more impact. And I thought, you know what, could you actually feel at the end of the day that you've made a difference somehow elsewhere like I said I wanted to ultimately be a professor but my goal was to then be someone who could exert influence to make change and I thought can I do that differently elsewhere so those two things together is what made me move. So looking at your current job today which do you feel are the pros and cons of the current job as to you know as compared to as looking back to what your job was when you were at university? 
I, I did really I like... mean, I, I imagined you, you didn't arrange any rope finding as no. a lecturer, yeah, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah. No, some of it is completely different. And I kind of like, what am I doing? Like, this is bizarre. Um, I remember <laughs> we did, a, you know, I kind of like organised loads of events. And I was like, I'm not an event organiser. I remember for one of the field trips where I was leading one of the field trips and I'd said to the kind of the kind of like programme leads that I booked the wrong flights for a holiday once. Well, you know, we booked a holiday for a week <laughs> before. I just have had, I'm really having to learn how to be organised. Maybe people don't want to hear that. But um, I think the pros are I'm meeting so many different people. Like I'm before, like my world was was the academic world and it's quite um. a kind of like fixed bubble you might have a few roots out um but it kind of all spans from academia currently i'm in like the vcs sector i'm in the public sector i'm in the private corporate sector and also kind of really targeted to groups that i actually want to you know in the private sector people who are mission-led value-led organizations that want to give back into the community in an interesting way so i quite like that exposure to different networks like the things i know now six months eight months into this job that i didn't before it's kind of like oh wow that's amazing and things that i think will really benefit charities like i feel my position as chair of the equality trust i've been able to suggest things now that i would never have done before Mm -hmm. because i hadn't been exposed so that's a really nice pro Um, and seeing how things work like actually in practice at a city region level cons though like it, it's really nice to be able to sit down and spend some time reading and working out the answer or mm. trying to get to a solution or understand why something's happened. And we do that to some extent in my current role, actually, especially bringing in the kind of policy series, roundtables, things we're looking at. But I miss the space to do that. I miss the space. I miss academic conferences. I miss kind of meeting, you know, like friends and people that you know through that and like having nice conversations about what you're doing. So it's, yeah, it's like the kind of like the kind of like the the substance of being an academic in terms of what Mm. you actually imagine it to be. I miss that. And the people and, you know, it's really hard to kind of maintain networks when you've got all these different things going on. So, yeah. But yeah, cons. How'd you find ropes to pull a bus? Like, that is definitely a con. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. I think that's a good one to, to leave it on. Thank you so much, Fran, for dropping into the podcast. Cheers. All right. Well, I think we're getting better at doing these kinds of conversations. Uh, how did that go for you, Danny? Um, I mean, it was really interesting. I think one of the aspects that I, or one of the reasons why I wanted to have Fran on, on this episode is because she didn't move on to industry per se. She moved on to a policy direct, uh, a policy role. And, and in fact, she's had a couple of them since. And her point that she makes on the, on the episode that there is so much that as an academic you can do in policy. And that realization wasn't clear for her as an academic or when she was in, in university. And that once she moved, it, it became clear that the world is in some ways bigger and more diverse and it's quite insightful and I think if you spend your days entirely surrounded by academics you might be you know full to think that we have a lot more influence than we necessarily do and that a lot of what we do is immediately impactful and I think Fran even as an academic was always really focused on making sure that whatever she was doing had a connection to the real world and it in some ways is really cool to see that follow through and and continue the trajectory. I, and I also appreciated that she said, I can't remember now if those were the words, 
but implicitly for sure is that she's not certain that that door is is fully fully closed that she would like to be in touch this idea that you either are or you aren't an academic maybe is is too dichotomy too too binary for yeah, yeah. 2023 and that the world would be a better place if we had a lot of in-betweens and what about pushes and pulls did you feel like you got any insights into sort of like what draws somebody to a job like this versus what might be sort of pushing them out the door a little bit i mean fran was i think really honest and and it's not an easy thing to say particularly to someone who used to be your your work colleague and your previous job um but i think it's important to say that well you, you've you've heard it in in the snippet she sort of said on the one hand i think she had always had in her mind that you know impact was one of the things she really wanted to do and and that you know the idea of a professor that that was in the collective mind maybe isn't the reality of a professor in in British academia but <laughs> but also that even if that was the case that that's not necessarily all she wanted to do but at the same time she talks about very very specific um aspects of the the job culture of the situation particularly when she quit this was around the pandemic it was a really really tough time and it was really hard also to connect with other people. To, I think she mentioned something about, you know, once after I moved, I realized, you know, talking to people, I realized how I was seen, and that wasn't obvious to me when, when I was in in those in those weeks and months. So, it's, you know, in some ways, I think I've always thought that the biggest loser of all of this was the University of Liverpool, uh, when with Fran leaving. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, though. I think it is the path she wanted to take and the path that quotation marks she was meant for <laughs> at some point. So maybe, you know, there's yeah. a silver lining everywhere. Well, next up, we have another guest segment. This this one is Carson Farmer talking to Levi. And Levi, maybe you can give a little bit of background on Carson. Sure. So um, Carson Farmer, uh, he's currently a uh, lead researcher at a company called Textile, which is a um, Web3 startup focused on building kind of open tools uh, for Web3 infrastructure. Um, Carson was an assistant professor uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder, um, and before that was at uh, Hunter College in New York City. So I, I think without too much more introduction, I'll let uh, Carson speak for himself and then maybe talk a little bit about it. Right now, I work for a small startup called Textile. And we're pretty focused on this more of a concept called Tableland. Um, so Textile is kind of like an R&D startup um, in the like decentralized web, uh, like peer-to-peer -peer networking, mm -hmm. uh, kind of open source, crypto tangential or like crypto adjacent world. Sure. And we build a lot of um, like database infrastructure layers for those types of projects. So we spend a lot of time thinking about like R&D for database infrastructure in a future web where you don't have just a bunch of singular centralized players, but instead you kind of have everybody who's in interacting with the web participating. Right. So like research yeah. for decentralized web kind of stuff. That makes sense. So totally. you still see your your job is very research oriented. Yeah, so we're we're a small startup, um, which means that 
you don't really have you can give yourself a, a job title if you want right. but tomorrow you're going to be doing something totally different probably um and so one day you might be marketing the next day you're business development the next day you're doing you know fundamental peer-to-peer -peer database research gotcha so um but in general i usually pitch myself in meetings and stuff as uh you know carson farmer research and development right which is like you know in a lot of cases it's it, it is pretty he research heavy like we we've published white papers and i'm working on a paper right now about you know data structures designed for peer-to-peer -peer collaboration yeah so we do a fair bit of researchy stuff i think a big reason for that is unlike a more traditional like startup world where you're kind of like building a product or building a, a widget or something like that in the world that we live in like everything is kind of brand new you know, it doesn't always work properly. Uh, yeah. Like peer-to-peer -peer communication is sometimes wrought with, you know, dropped connections and things like that. So you end up having to do a lot of like research to figure out, okay, how do we make this, how do we call, call this thing together to make it actually behave the way we want it to. Right. Because you're so, at like the cutting edge yeah. of the technical system that that like is totally new in a way. Well, I like to think so, but I think almost everybody thinks that. <laughs> so it's a little... sure. It's a Hard little, to say. Uh, maybe, but yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, I was joking with a colleague the other day, geez, wouldn't it be nice if we got to just like build software that actually worked the way it was supposed to work instead of trying to like build something the next, you know, the next iteration, sure. but, um, it's kind of fun to, to sort of be at the cut, the, the cutting edge. Well, before you, you went into industry, before you kind of, uh, started working on this stuff. Um, you had kind of a, a I would say, a well-traveled academic career, yeah? You, you did a bit of time in Ireland. You, you had a post in New York City and then in Boulder. Kind of walk me through how you got into academia and then kind of the various bits that, that you went through along the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm, that's always a good way to figure out where someone is from where they came from. So I did my undergrad you know, like many people, wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. Um, and like many people who end up in a sort of like geospatial or geography world, I discovered it, I didn't plan on it. I thought I was going to be a research chemist, I think. Uh, but it turns out I don't like chemistry. And, uh, you know, and I'm very bad at biology. So it didn't really work out. Okay. Uh, right. But I took some electives in geography. And, uh, just sort of really, you know, I really enjoyed that. And then I think in my third or yeah, third or fourth year in the geography program, I took a statistics class, um, probably stats for geographers or something like mm -hmm. that. And just totally fell in love with like, it was the best subject I'd ever had. A lot of that is because I had a really great professor, um, Ian O'Connell. And, um, did a like honors thesis where i explored housing prices mm -hmm. in uh like in the local urban area and i sort of dove into a bunch of their like research like reading papers and things like that um and found i really enjoyed that and i think uh my soon-to-be master's advisor at the time trislin nelson was like what the heck is this like undergrad student doing reading you know academic papers i probably should like uh, point him in the right direction and, and and show him 
um, how fun research can be. I'm pretty sure Tristan was like, look, you can do a master's with me, but you got to learn to program over the summer. And so I learned to program over the, the summer, just like hanging out in their, in her research lab mm-hmm. on the weekends and like after work. And then, yeah, it was like, oh yeah, I definitely have to do this like all the time. Um, so that was pretty cool. And then, yeah, after I finished my master's at UVic, I decided I'm going to just, I'm going to go wherever the people I want to work with are. It doesn't matter where that is. So I applied for a bunch of schools in the UK, in the US, probably not that many in Canada. I probably, I think I probably wanted to go somewhere else. Um, and so I started working with Stuart in Stuart Fotheringham in um, Ireland, he was uh, heading up the NCG at the National University of Ireland at the time. I think it's called Maynooth University now. Um, and so I went over there and did my PhD. And at that same time, I, re- I switched from like natural, like mm-hmm. natural systems to human systems. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason for that is like, you can kind of get a right answer in natural systems in theory, mm-hmm. but with humans are just so crazy and weird and their behavior is so interesting that I was like, oh, I want to, I want to study how human behavior kind of influences and is influenced by, you know, the environment and urban form and all that. So did a bunch of stuff on commuting and um, like sort of natural um, geographic aggregations and things like that. And uh, worked there for a couple of years and then postdoc in Scotland at St. Andrews again with Stuart. At a point, you're doing your, you do a PhD, you do a postdoc, and you're just like, my my goal is like, I love it. academia is this institution that I think is extremely important in the world, and I still think is extremely important in the world. Um, and you kind of realize, well, that's like, I want to help build up this institution. I want to contribute to this institution. I want to be a professor. I want to push research. I want to teach other people how cool this stuff is. And so, you know, like at one point I just stopped even thinking about any other sort of career path. It was just like, I'm going to be a a professor. And, you know, I went to an AIG in New York and just like had the time of my life in New York afterwards. And then the job, you know, posting for um, CUNY Hunter College came up and I thought, well, like living in New York City is awesome all the time. So I should definitely go live there and work there. Then you realize you can't afford to actually live yeah. like you did that one week in new york uh ex- going to broadway shows every night and all that stuff <laughs> but new york the, the city it was just a great place to do to be a young assistant professor like there's just so much happening there at the intersection of like you know geography and and geospatial sciences at, at least for sure at the time Mm-hmm. and in academia but then also that you've got all these like startups and financial institutions and they're all also interested in like learning and sharing knowledge yeah. and then you've got this huge civic hacker community that like um like exists and continues to exist in new york city and so you know i could spend uh, all day teaching and and doing research and then all evening going to like meetups and and you can never run out of opportunities so the opportunity at um, CU Boulder came up and like, honestly, you get a jo- you get an opportunity to, you know, to apply for a job at CU Boulder, you, you know, you're not going to turn that down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's like, I had to do a lot of 
con pros and cons weighing um because you know uh like pay you automatically get paid a little bit more in new york yeah. city or at least if you have a retention offer they'll you know they'll offer to pay you more because it's an expensive place to live and they know that um and so there's you know like quality of life and lifestyle things that have to factor into it um, sure. and access to all that you know sort of nascent local research and interest boulder is you know pretty small research yeah. um you know university town but you know github was there twitter was there you know facebook and google all had offices there so like a lot of those technical like tech teams that I was interfacing with in New York also had offices in Boulder. I was involved in that quote unquote scene as well. Of course, this is before COVID. So like you could actually meet people yeah. in a room somewhere um, yeah. and, 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 you know, have go to talks and things like that. Yeah. I went to talks on, you know, Uber's early work on self-driving research and stuff like that. And it was all, you know, pretty exciting in Boulder as well. So if it still felt like, super dynamic in this way and sounds at least like interesting in this way um why did you leave yeah that's a good question so i've thought about this many many times um and that was a big decision to leave like big 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 decision i pained over it for a long time um some of them are really personal reasons that i probably won't discuss on a podcast um but other ones are um you know big one was literal geography i in academia you don't get to pick necessarily where you live if your goal is to be at a good you know institution where you want to go where the sort of like good research is happening you know my wife and i we kind of always wanted to be back on the west coast and the likelihood of that happening you know is was low um be you know if we're kind of always limited by what university we could get i could yeah. get a job at basically um now boulder is awesome place to live and if you know again if anybody gets a chance to live there it's it's really nice but um you know you just i don't we didn't get to pick where we were we were living and then in the sort of like job satisfaction realm i often found that i was spending more time doing the things that i didn't really want to do like marketing and faculty meetings and you know like the sort of like administrative things that nobody really wants to do it's certainly not why you get into academia in the first place and less time doing like the core research and like you know um fundamental science that most people get into academia for yeah but the reward mechanisms that the university like leverages don't reflect what I actually was spending my time doing. So I get rewarded for publishing tons of research and paper, especially at an R1 like CU Boulder. Mm -hmm. But CU Boulder wants me to be like teaching and doing committee meetings and blah, 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 which takes away from the time that I have to do research. So I, ended, I found I was doing research in the evenings, like when I had time to do it, right. and then all the other stuff during the day. And I should preface this with, I think that my time management skills at the time were pretty, pretty poor. Sure. And if I ever go back to academia, which is a distinct possibility, I think. Um, okay. One of the first things I would have my research lab or my research group do is time management courses, which, by the way, we do on a regular basis in my in our small startup. 
So, you know, those are part, part of the reasons. And I remember a moment, there's a moment where I was like, I don't know if this is the life I want, which is I was talking to a senior colleague of mine, not going to name names, but talking to a senior colleague of mine who I was talking about what we were going to do on the weekend. It's a Friday night. Right. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to, you know, me and my wife are going to go out for dinner or do something fun, you know? Yeah. And this senior colleague was like, yeah, you know, I was thinking I should, I should take Friday night off as well and do something fun. And I thought, oh, no. Whoa, you have tenure, like you have published some important papers in this field. Like you shouldn't even be thinking about working on a Friday night. Like, wow, this, you know, and like, I was just like, wow, I do not want to be having those thoughts when I'm a fully tenured professor with, you know, years and years of really, you know, great publications behind me. Like I should be enjoying my Friday night for sure. For sure. So, um, you know, so these, all these little thoughts were like, oof, I don't know. That doesn't sound that fun. Um, and then there's like, you know, t tenure pressure and I uh, was on the tenure track. So, you know, you know, got to get all this publishing done and, you know, your job should be hard. If it's, if you're doing a worthwhile job, it's hard. So, you know, yeah. that's fine. Um, but then an opportunity came along where a colleague from New York, um, that I had collaborated with said, Hey, look, we're, we're going to start a company and, um, it's like sort of like geo spatial movements and things based. Um, you know, I remember some research that you did. I think it would be a really good fit. What would it take? He's like, I know you got your junior job at CU Boulder, but like, what would it take for you to leave? And I thought about a bunch about it and I had done, I did some consulting with them beforehand just to, you know, help them out, but also to see what it would be like. And eventually like a proper offer set came along and they said, Hey, you, would you leave this like tenure track academic? path for a tiny startup that's like completely unproven and i wrote a big long email about all like why it would be really irresponsible to do that and like i'd be leaving this good job and there's no way i should do this and then i'm pretty sure i finished it off with so yeah let's tr let's let's go um and you know the rest is sort of hit history at this stage gotcha um, that's that's wild man that's that's a pretty pretty awesome story it's interesting to me that you you say that you're still thinking about or potentially uh considering returning to academia do you see yourself as having quit it yeah initially emotionally felt like a, a hard break and then you realize now well, you've sort of phased out um i think the biggest thing though is it is hard to stay on top of like publishing and like the sort of like standard academic practices of like pretty much keeping people up to date on what you're doing yeah. research wise when you've got like deadlines and you know uh code reviews and you know product to sort of build um and so that part of it feels very much out of like it, it's a little harder to justify like spending an afternoon reading you know fundamental research when you know you've got like three pull requests that are waiting for a review from you and, you know, things like that. So gotcha. in that sense, it does feel like you sort of, it's just totally separate world. Um, 
you know, most of my experience in, in industry has been for with small startups. Um, there's a lot that they can learn from academia as well. I, I still think it's an extremely important institute. I'm not one of these people who's like, academia was a waste of time. It's just a piece of paper. Sure, I'm, sure. I'm still, you know, I think it's one of the most important institutions that our society has. Um, I mean, where where else can you sort of like give very smart people and not so smart people sometimes the space and time to think deeply and learn deeply about a project or a, sorry, a topic and become, you know, an expert in them and to push the state of the art forward. Like it's, you know, that sort of institution, you just can't do that when you've got customers waiting for a product update or you're like just trying to find product market fit um, yeah. or any of the other buzzwords that startups talk about uh, along the way. Sure. So I think it's a very important institution and people who, talk about oh so and so you know never finished university no but they spent a bunch of time there and they had space and time to think about their unicorn startup that they ended up creating like it's yeah. an important institution so i really wanted to talk to carson because it's it's a really good illustration of all of the different kind of priorities in our life that you know are the reasons why we choose to do different things it's not just about the job it's also about you know, us and our family and our networks and wanting to live in certain parts of the, the country or the world. And opportunities in academia don't often afford you the ability to do that, right? So there's there's a lot about people's personal stories that gets wrapped up into their workplaces or, you know, how they choose where they want to live that academia doesn't really support that all the time. We don't really have a lot of choice in where we want to be. And you know, you kind of have to uproot your entire family to move to where the job is if you're the one with the ability to to make those decisions. So the, I, I remember moving to the UK and seeing when Carson made the decision to to leave Boulder and, and calling him up and having a, a really great conversation about these topics because I had just done something similar. So I, I really wanted to make sure that we had his perspective here and you know, made sure that we gave gave voice to all of those kind of different priorities why people make these decisions. Yeah, well, it was interesting when we were talking about putting this podcast episode together among the three of us, but then also sort of at conferences and sort of testing the waters, which is how we knew that the, the title quitters might be met with ambivalence, but that lots and lots of people said, oh, you should talk to Carson. And so that's very interesting, sort of how small our geographical analytic community is. But another person that I think sort of instantly sprang to mind is Seth Spielman. And Seth is our third and final guest segment today. And I'm not sure when I met Seth, but what I do know is that uh, when I moved to Brown, I moved to take his job. And Seth left Brown, which was a he was an excellent job at an, in an excellent center in an excellent university, but he left because he got a tenure track position in geography at University of Colorado Boulder. And so it's a little bit like winning a lottery, even if you knew that your odds were pretty good because Seth is a really good scholar. Um, and since then, in our community, he stands out because he is somebody who has continued to publish and produce and be very well known within the geography community, but has also taken on pretty for us anyway, high profile jobs at Apple um, and now at Microsoft. And so I think for all three of us, it seems sort of obvious um, to have a conversation with him as somebody who's not so much an early career researcher, but somebody who's sort of mid-career and made the decision that seems from the outset anyway, to make a jump from academia to full-time industry. And so let's just hear a little bit my conversation with Seth. 
I'm uh, Seth Spielman. I'm a director in Microsoft's core search and artificial intelligence group. Um, I lead a group of people all over the world who focus on measuring online content. Um, all of that feeds into a, a product called the new Bing, which is this sort of AI driven web search thing that Microsoft recently released. Super, but you are a geographer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so how does web search relate to geography? Uh, yeah, I, I, for much of my academic life uh, and as a geographer, I focused on questions around how you sort of, you know, represent the large complex world out there digitally. And, um, and the internet is kind of a space too. And so, so these questions about measurement in the physical world translate very cleanly into questions about how to sort of measure and represent things in the online world. Yeah, so you work in industry now, but I, I wonder if you could just share with us a little bit about where you started and what your professional trajectory has looked like to get you to Microsoft today. Yeah, um, so I have undergraduate degrees in uh, geography and cultural studies. Um, I inherited a bookstore out of college and ran a bookstore into the ground for a few years and then decided to go back uh, and get a master's degree in urban planning at Columbia. And from Colum from there, I, I actually immediately after graduating, I was hired as a research scientist and it was really fun and exciting and I loved the work. But they said to me like, hey, you can't do this forever without a PhD, you have to go get a PhD. And it wasn't really obvious what to get a PhD in for me. I, I liked, uh, you know, I cared about cities. Um, I was interested in public health. I was interested in statistics and methods. I was interested in GIS and mapping and all of those kinds of things. And um, after applying to, you know, lots of different kinds of PhD programs, I ended up uh, doing a very sort of quantitative PhD program in geography that really was at the intersection of kind of maps and statistics. And then what happened? After oh, well, that? then at, sorry. Yeah. And then after that, <laughs> I, my life ended. <laughs> Once you leave school, it's just all. No. Um, from there, I went to Brown uh, University, uh, where we both, we both worked there, uh, not at the same time, but uh, in the same position. Um, and yeah. then uh, from there to the University of Colorado. Uh, where I was a, a professor in geography. And um, a few years into that gig, I had an opportunity to join Apple Maps. And um, that was really exciting. And uh, did that for uh, four or five years. And then um, came back to the university as a senior administrator. And then recently had an opportunity to join Microsoft and uh, took that. And you're kind of interesting because... I mean, it's not just that you were at Colorado for a few years. You actually were, were tenured at mm -hmm. Colorado. Yep. Yeah. When you took the job at Apple, were you thinking to yourself that there were things that you didn't really want to be doing anymore about the academic job? Like, could you just talk us through a little yeah. bit that that transition phase? Yeah, it was all sort of curiosity. It was all pull. It wasn't push. Like, I loved being, I really liked being a professor, but I... Um, thought it was a really intriguing and exciting opportunity at Apple. The, the story at Apple at the time was that they had released a, a mapping application that uh, was a little bit embarrassing and had gotten a lot of bad press and they wanted to sort of reinvent how you make maps on mobile devices. And uh, I thought that was a really sort of singular and exciting opportunity to think about how you build a new map of the world that let people sort of engage with the world around them in, in new ways. And so, um, that's what did it feel did. like you were using the same skills in both kinds of jobs, like the academic job and the Apple job? 
in some sense, yes. I mean, it was the same kind of problem domain, you know, like I had to write code yeah. and deal with data and those kinds of things. Um, I think that the, 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 the thing that an academic training and that a PhD does for you really well is I think to be successful as an academic, you have to be able to frame problems in a way that allows you to engage with them and frame interesting problems and meaningful problems. And at Apple, I think the, the skill that most translated wasn't the technical stuff, but it was this ability to, to really think about how to sort of frame problems in a way that we can sort of engage with it and move towards a solution. And so, um, and at MAPS, you know, all of those questions were domains I knew really well, like, how do we build a data structure for this new map of the world? Like, what should it, the data look yeah. like? Or how do we know if it's good or bad? And now that you've had a couple of jobs in industry, so Apple and now Microsoft, are there things that you would say are still kind of special about an academic job? Yeah, I, I think academic jobs are great. Like, I think the thing that to me is compelling about academic jobs is you have these, it's almost like two jobs in one, you know, um, yeah. but both of them are really driven towards positive social impact. So on the one hand, you, you know, you get to do research and you get to sort of write papers or make art or whatever it is you do as an academic, but you're doing that with the idea of having a positive impact on the world and, and that the products that you produce um, really create sort of positive social change or outcomes or new technologies or whatever, but but things that are, are really helpful. Um, and then you're also teaching and mentoring students. And, and that also is a very kind of direct impact on the world and um, and supporting people as they sort of grow into their careers. And I think what's really great about those things is they're sort of separate, but they also rhyme really nicely yeah. uh, in an academic position. Well, and okay, what about the flip side? So what, what would you say is special about an industry job from where you sit? Given that you didn't start out at the bottom, right? You're doing interesting stuff, but uh, tell our listeners what's cool about industry. Yeah, I, I, I think it is an unparalleled opportunity to have an impact on the world. I think that when you're making something that is used by hundreds of millions or billions of people every day, it has a profound impact. Even if, you know, there's hundreds or thousands of people working on that thing and your piece of it is small, um, I think it all matters. And I think that that technology, you know, in in geography and more generally, increasingly kind of mediates our interaction with the world, with the physical world. It mediates our interactions with information and other people. And I think uh, working to sort of shape that in positive ways is really rewarding and interesting work. So when we talk about quitters or transitioning from one kind of profession to another, you wouldn't say that it was so much about having things in the academic job that you were just tired of doing and didn't want to do anymore. For me, it was all pull. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't pushed. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I enjoyed being a professor. I liked it. I liked um, where I worked. I liked what I was working on. Um, and, uh, but I just thought, you know, there are certain kinds of things that you can't do as an academic, you know, as an academic, you're really like a one person show in a lot of ways. I mean, you have a lab and you have colleagues, yeah. but it's mostly you and your build, your, your, your identity, you know, your identity is you, your, your, your academic yeah. identity is really about you and what you do. Uh, and uh, I thought it was a really interesting opportunity to go and join a, a big company and to work on something that was sort of more than just me um, and that had a broader impact than that. Um, yeah. When um, in previous episodes, when Danny and Levi and I have talked about sort of 
alt-ac and alternative careers in the academy or different ways of being an academic or doing research, I think one thing that we've sort of settled on is that in the past, the academic job was the one that had the most flexibility, both in terms of how you organized your day, whether you could go pick your kids up from school, your choice about what kinds of research you wanted to engage in, what what outputs you wanted to have. And I think that most of the, we, we, we might think of most of the pressures as being internalized. Like, of course, you need to publish, but it doesn't take very many years before a lot of academics figure out how to do that themselves without somebody externally telling them to do it. Whereas in industry, it seems like it was probably much more formal, sort of more nine to five, somebody else deciding what you do. But certainly during the pandemic and afterwards, I think it certainly seems like there's more of a convergence in sort of how those jobs look. And I wonder what you would have to say about that. Yeah, I think that as an academic, you have really unparalleled intellectual freedom, right? Like, if you wanted to, you know, spend the next year, you know, writing a book about left-handed goats, you could do that, right? Like there would be nothing stopping you from doing that. Whereas in industry, like that's not true, right? You are generally working as a part of a group of people who are working towards this shared goal of making something. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of operating constraints. Um, and you have, you know, when things are working well and every, you know, you have opportunity and, you know, there's there's a lot of room for creativity in industry, but you're solving problems within those kinds of organizational or those product constraints. Whereas as an academic, you don't have any of that. And so you do have a lot of freedom for sure uh, as an yeah. academic. Uh, you And it's just different. Yeah. I guess yeah. one of the things you can do, like, like I never, when I was a professor, like when I went on vacation, I was like, oh, now I can write or now I can do actual work or whatever, you know, like because you are the product as an academic, yes. you know, you are yes. your offering to the world. It's very hard to disengage and, and leave. And one of the things that was really interesting to me uh, early on in Apple was that like people didn't do anything on vacation. Like they were just gone, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was news to me. Um, and so, yeah. you know, that's sort of a, a plus, like it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you find that to be sort of a, um, an advantage of being in industry? It's a plus and a minus. You know, I yeah. think that if you, uh, if one of your big motivators in life is your, that sort of professional reputation and networking and, you know, having a public identity as a scholar or as a knowledgeable person, um, academia is way better. Whereas in, uh, in a commercial setting, oftentimes, you know, you're one of many people. And it's hard to say that you did something all by yourself. Like you're a part of a big group of people. And so um, you get more financial rewards in industry, but you don't get that kind of those ego <laughs> rewards. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time. And I wanted to circle back to the the, the quitters thing and, and the sort of uh, <laughs> uh, what, I, what I think I understand from you, which is that for you, it wasn't really about quitting so much as wanting to have a foot in, in both. And I wonder if there's any anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I, I think I tried to get you to change the name of the program to Upgraders, not Quitters. <laughs> but that's not really fair, because I don't think leaving academia is necessarily an upgrade. I think it's just different. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that 
either you are an academic or you aren't, that we have this kind of bright line between industry and academia. Like I think yeah. that is largely artificial. And I think that if we could make that boundary more fluid, I think our science would be better. It would be more. Uh, and I think the, these sort of commercial products that really mediate large parts of people's lives would be better. And so I, I think that there's a real opportunity to sort of re-envision or to think in creative ways about what it means to be a faculty member in ways that it's not either you are or you aren't, that you don't have to quit, that you can have this fluidity, whether it's going and working in local government and actually really understanding how local government works and actually being there and being able to take that back to your scholarship or doing the same kind of thing uh, in a large tech company or any, anywhere else. And so I, I think it's unfortunate that you have to quit to have these kinds of yeah. diverse experiences, but that's the reality of things now. All right. Well, I, I always wanted to think about my ability as an academic and the freedoms that I have to write articles about left-handed goats, which is <laughs> Seth's example of the freedoms that academics have. Yeah, I think there were a few takeaways, and maybe now we can sort of think about all the takeaways from these conversations. But for me, the sort of, you know, I went into it thinking about pushes versus pulls and the sort of assumption that at different stages of one's career, um, one would dominate and that it might be more about pushes for earlier career researchers, whereas, you know, the, the more mid-career or senior you are, the more it's about pulls. But it turns out that for a lot of people, it's a lot more complicated, right? I mean, for Seth, it's not mm. so much about one versus the other, but this tension, I think you mentioned it, Danny, this tension in 2023 of actually wanting to be able to combine two different kinds of jobs at the same time, that, that cutting edge, interesting industry work that has so much global impact versus that sort of academic job, which let's face it, really, if we're talking about impact and direct impact, it's probably the most impact that anyone could have in their lives is, is in the classroom, right? And if we're lucky, a little bit our research. And so it's the perfect, portfolio if you can do a little bit of all of those things. So that for me anyway, talking to Seth was one of the big takeaways. I don't know what, what you guys think about, I don't know, everyone we've talked to. I had a similar thought about this idea of uh, you either are or you aren't an academic. I think Seth said it explicitly on the snippet that it's a bit weird and with almost, well, I don't know, with other jobs, but it's definitely this idea of flexibility in, it's, it's less than than it probably should. And I don't know whose fault it is or how exactly you would do it. Yeah, well, and the other thing that's really interesting is that, you know, in our in our early conversation at the beginning of this episode, talking about flexibility and which, which kind of industry, which kind of job has the most flexibility. And it seems pretty clear talking to these folks, and we know from our jobs, our listeners probably also know, there's an awful lot of flexibility in an academic job. And there's also a fair amount of flexibility increasingly in a lot of industry jobs. What there is not flexibility on is the combination of the two. Everyone wants your full hat. Yeah, I wonder if that has something to do with the way that academia is increasingly like professionalized, right? That we have so many different kind of totally encompassing roles that we're expected to fulfill. And it, it it's almost a way that things used to be a little bit more blurred, right? If you worked at a think tank or like a private lab, like Bell Labs or the Rand Corporation, you know, you'd, you'd have the opportunity to do these things and there was a professionalization and now things are kind of blending back in with a lot of these kinds of cutting edge papers with, you know, DeepMind and 
a couple other companies that still do a lot of academic work. So I just wonder if it's it, it comes in waves like this over the history of academia. Mm. Um, and maybe the rise of big science caused academics to professionalize a little bit. I don't know. Well, it's also unclear whether the sort of spatial analytic piece of geography or geographic data science is also a little bit unusual and sort of what people what, what combination of tools and approaches people are using and how they're spending their days or maybe not i think it makes the jump if if that uh if that's a good metaphor uh, a smaller one to have to take i think a lot of, of some of the stuff we're doing is not that different is the context is the structure and and is the goal i think the other thing that Seth also mentioned it, mentions it, and when you were asking us, uh, Rachel, in the beginning, whether we we have envy, uh, something I didn't say is I do have envy of some salaries, but set that aside. The one thing that I, when I have a bad day at work, that always keeps sort of keeps keeps me where I am is this sense that ultimately university, in theory, it is for the public good, and in practice, you know, the world is a little different sometimes, but. But other jobs is not in, not even in theory that you're doing it for the public good, right? So, it I think it's yeah different goals and well industry is not for the public good. I mean I think you have no, exactly. to exactly yeah yeah and well I mean it, I guess it depends who you ask. The CEO would tell you that their goals are for for the good sure, of everyone, sure. but well I think the what I was shareholders maybe a bit more. When I was thinking about the sort of the that that we might be special or unusual in our little niche of a field, I was thinking if you were in theater or drama or English, you, you would be doing your your feet would be in both camps de facto, right? You would be engaged mm. in, in productions all the time. If you're you know in many sort of language sorts of departments, you're either doing translations or you're writing your own novels. You're doing things that are not actually a formal part of that job at all, constantly. In politics, I mean, writing for the New York Times opinion section, that's not part of an academic job. And yet there are plenty of uh, disciplinary niches where it's totally acceptable to have a foot in both camps. Yeah. I mean, like, I think the, especially like when you think of engineering, there are a lot of professors that part of their time might be paid for by a company to do work that's relevant to that company's research goals. And it's, it's these like hybrid funding models of, you know, kind of soft uh, soft money uh, that they uh, talk about. But some of these people do indeed have more blended models than what we've kind of ended up with in maybe social sciences generally, but I think maybe geography particularly because it's a, a more eclectic domain. But yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I think increasingly we're going to, we're going to be riding on this kind of downward wave of uh, kind of how academia monopolizes our time. And I'd love to see, you know, more, civic involvement and maybe more industrial involvement too, as long as the results of that go to the public good, yeah. as Danny was saying, rather than the private. Yeah, well, I was thinking about something you said at the beginning of the episode, Levi, about um, our careers being longer than they ever have before. And so maybe it is sort of natural to think about having more than one actual career. I mean, when I was young, people used to say, you're going to have six or seven different kinds of jobs, but they sort of meant it, that you're going, you're not going to be able to stay put with the same job and the same pension the way maybe our grandparents did. But this is completely different. This is sort of suggesting that our working lives are going to be so long that you could have a fully developed, fully specced out career or profession, um, or more than one, several, over the course of our working yeah. lives. And that reminds me of, you know, sometimes 
for rising divorce rates, the same argument is made, right? That, yeah. mar- that marriages were never meant to last this long. So we should <laughs> cut, cut people some slack because it used to be that, you know, high rates of mortality meant that you were only stuck with somebody for a couple of decades most. So maybe the same, maybe it's the same thing with our jobs, right? We should expect um, the clock to run out and then we want to try something new. Yeah. But that doesn't get it necessarily at that sort of segmentation. So I'm sort of fascinated by this sort of sequencing of careers, but also the segmentation of our careers and how we might, from from what we're doing in the moment at time T, actually divide up across different kinds of professions yeah. or industries. Yeah. Any last comments that either one of you wanted to make? I don't know. Just that this one has caught me thinking a lot. Uh, all, all the snippets have really interesting insights that I hadn't quite thought about. And, and considering an alternative job is not something I don't think ever. So it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting. Well, I'll try to I use a triple negative to yeah, make it less clear. I do think there's kind of one dimension we haven't talked about too much, which is the fact that, especially for a lot of early career researchers, and again, I'm thinking of, you know, some of my students and peers, being an academic is, is a large part of some people's identity, right? So when you're, you choose to leave academia, some people feel it to be a bigger uh, kind of category of decision than choosing to leave one company for another because they feel like they're leaving a whole community of people. And I, I think sometimes academics are also notorious for only wanting to talk to other academics in mixed company. Um, so I do wonder, like, there, there is a dimension to which some of these decisions are larger because we make them so, right? We place a lot of personal investment in, in the fact that being an academic is an identificational category. And we've talked a little bit about that in past episodes too. But it is interesting to see how when you walk someone, you know, all of our interviewees through the reasons why they make these decisions, a lot of the time it boils down to these, you know, different priorities other than being an academic as one of them. So I find that really interesting. And I think in particular for early career researchers, it tends to be a a big facet, at least in in my understanding. Yeah. And just to close that, when we were talking about people that we might be able to interview for our guest segments, our list got really long, really quickly. And of course, we don't have space to interview lots and lots of people. So I don't know if we've missed anything or if you have a story that you want to tell. I think we're really curious about the stories of transitions from one state of professional being to another. And we'd love to hear from you. We do have an email. It's thegladpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we're always open for commentary or feedback, but also stories about quitting. I'd love to hear that. And we've got lots of new stuff coming up. Danny, anything you want to say? That we've got lots of stuff coming up. A lot of that will will probably happen uh, after the summer, which is when you're listening to this anyway, because we are uh, trying to become better academics by taking some time off. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of really exciting stuff. Just stay tuned and tell a friend to tell a friend. Yeah. And just a reminder, we... We would love to hear from you. If you've got feedback, things that we're doing right, stuff you would love us to talk about, we can use all of the input we can get. We're still clearly uh, newbies at this. And just a reminder that our email address is thegladpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Where can people find us, Levi? 
on social media. Uh, we can the podcast is available on any uh, podcast listening app like Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, but please, you know, let us know uh, how you listen as well. If we're not on a platform you want, uh, check the email in the show notes or find us on social media. Yeah. Our, Thank you very much for coming. All right. And that's it for this episode, everyone. Bye. We're glad you're here.